Record. All right. Whiskey, whiskey, the singer's getting sore. We raise the roof now and we're lowering the floor. The band is blistering, but we got a little more. When I say one, two, you say three, four. One, two, three, four. Welcome to Whiskey Topic. It's Mark Bylock, and we have a very special tasting today. It's a much anticipated uh, tasting of all whiskeys from the 60s, 1960s. We have three brands here, um, and also at different price points. We have got a couple of affordable ones and one 18 year old. Uh, brand new 18-year-old uh, whiskey that I haven't tasted before on the podcast. And, of course, uh, Jamie's on assignment, but today we have returning uh, guest and food lawyer from Toronto, Ontario, Glenford Jamison. Welcome back to the podcast. Hey, man. I thought you'd never have me back. I know. Well, the, the truth is we've recorded, I think, two podcasts together that were posted, and I think we've recorded two more where they didn't quite make it online. They're, they're going to be part of the vault. That oh. they're, they're still stored somewhere, uh, but they were mostly drunken ramblings of um, two guys after... Uh, Day of uh, walking around Kentucky, so that's all. That was those were fun. I yeah, think. that was a good time. That was a long time ago. That was a long time ago. Who remembers what happened back then? Other than they were never posted. <laughs> one one day I'll be bribed. I'll be like, can can you guys post those podcasts? Um, uh, but no, we um, we're here to dr- uh, so we're here to drink um, these uh, dusties from Canadian whiskey. Really talk about. Um, all sorts of dusties, like what you're looking for when you're buying old whiskey um, and kind of what's, uh, you know, what you, can you expect flavor-wise? Um, that's going to be a fun question. And really what to look for if you're buying a dusty um, uh, whiskey bottle. So, uh, Glenford, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, let's drink some whiskey. Where, should, where do you think we should start? Uh, I think we should start with, I'll, I'll give you my, my bias. I think we should start, start with the Crown Royal because the Crown Royal is the bottle that has survived decades and decades and decades it's the same bottle same product that let's preface this entire thing by yes. saying that i really hate canadian whiskey <laughs> you do you like, do but you drink your lot 40 you do your you do your lot 40 you know rye. i have an an unopened bottle of the cast strength from the first run uh-huh. uh and i think that's the only canadian whiskey i have in my cabinet right now wow um unopened though so it's it it's serving no purpose right so now. So there's zero Canadian whiskey in my sort of stash of Canadian whiskey. There's just zero Canadian whiskey. It tastes like garbage, generally. <laughs> uh, but I strongly disagree with you, by the way. But this is a great way to, to, to uh, introduce well, yeah, our so, Canadian whiskey. Right. So I can count on one hand sort of the number of Canadian whiskeys that yeah. I've enjoyed in the past. And one of them was a Dusty, uh, which was pretty wonderful. It was that uh, Centennial... Uh, yeah. whiskey that you had from 1967. Yep. Yeah. Uh, it was pretty extraordinary. Yeah. That was really fantastic. Uh, yeah. And, and honestly the, the cast strength, the lot 40 cast strength is pretty lovely when it came out of the barrel. Uh, and I think I've had a, a sip or two from bottle, which was mm-hmm. nice, but yeah. but yeah, I really haven't been into it. Uh, it doesn't really give me a whole lot to think about. I find generally. And what do you like to drink? So what is your kind of go-to whiskeys? Uh, well, everything else, basically I, so that's a really rough statement on Canadian whiskey. Like I'm not very picky, but, uh, except for Canadian whiskey. Anything but. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. I, I mean, I just find it. Wow. So I really enjoy bourbon. Yeah. Um, we've been to Kentucky together maybe six times. Uh, and that's a really fun trip. And, and scotch was something that I really enjoyed as a younger drinker and then sort of got off for a while. And now I'm definitely having a, another scotch moment. And so I'm spending a lot of time right. when I do drink, uh, whiskey, often it's scotch. Uh, I really uh, am uh, fascinated and excited by uh, things that we're seeing in hot climates. Right, uh, right. I really enjoy the, the concept. Amrits, the uh, yeah, the whiskey from Taiwan. Taiwan. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I think that's really cool. I think it's really exciting. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I think that all of those places really have a story. And I think Canadian whiskey, its story is primarily one of taxation and decriminalization and then of legislative arbitrage uh, next to a place where it's banned. And, uh, and maybe, like, uh, I don't know uh, if it's a cautionary tale, but, uh, but certainly a tale of, like, what criminalization generally gets you in terms mm -hmm. of product quality. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it's, the, it's, like, the missionary sex of bottom-shelf whiskey. It's just, like, super uninteresting. It's, it's very practical, and I can't figure out who the man was who was, like, driven to drink this above anything else, uh, who, like, refused to demand change. Or, right. or was just like, you know what, like, I don't want to drink like this, but I don't want to go dry. So I guess I'll be a Crown 40 drinker for the next 70 years of my life. I do think, like, history takes an interesting spin here because uh, with, you know, before Prohibition, Canadian whiskey sold really well in the U.S., but uh, with Prohibition, um, there, was a, there was a huge rush to market with whiskey, and the volumes just increased, increased, increased uh, in other countries because, of course, the U.S. wasn't producing any, not a lot anyway, legally. Um, but after Prohibition, bourbon also just sucked terribly. Uh, and uh, Canadian whiskey really succeeded in this, continued to succeed in the 60s and 70s where people were drinking a lot of vodka and they wanted the lightest style whiskey. So you have the, the, the fam famous story of Wild, Wild Turkey 81 is called Wild Turkey 81. Uh, you know, this is Jimmy Russell's story. He goes to me, he's like, look, the, uh, the marketers in the 70s said, nobody wants to drink your, because it was always 101. It was never going to be less than 101. He's like, we, nobody wants to drink 101 proof whiskey. We want to, everybody else is saying these 80 proof stuff. You got to have an 80 proof wh whiskey to compete. And he's like, I don't, I don't want to do 80. He's like, we well, settle for 81. And so he made them an 81 or 40.5% proof whiskey as a statement of, look, I'm not going to serve you 40% alcohol. Because uh, that's not what bourbon is. Bourbon was always 50% or more, typically. Um, and I guess 101 is probably a statement to that as well, where it's 100 proof, not a, sorry, 101 proof, not 100 proof. Uh, so it kind of kept that going. But the whole idea is that, that a lot of whiskey got so uninteresting in the 70s and 80s. And then you hit Canada, which had these giant distilleries that just produced a lot of stuff made in reused oak. So not a lot of oak influence, not a lot of flavor, uh, just a lot of corn whiskey with some rye flavoring. And it was just very palatable and and i don't think anybody drank it neat i think they just drank it with coke like this was this was not a i mean that's why i drank my canadian whiskey yeah definitely like drinker. i'm looking at these three bottles and i'm wondering which mix is best with fanta right, right. Like, no totally totally <laughs> and, and you had these so you had these really rare products where like the one you mentioned before the the good hammer Wars 18 uh sorry 15 um that's a, this terrific bottle and and you wonder, you wonder how much those whiskeys succeeded. And I guess they didn't succeed at all. And, and so even though they were made, they probably weren't big commercial success stories. Um, so now you have an industry which, you know, bourbon changed a lot in the 2000s, especially because whiskey started coming into cocktail culture. They wanted four flavor whiskeys. Um, and Canada kind of started this pro process really like three, four years ago. Like it's still, it, this, this kind of more luxury Canadian whiskey market is still in its infancy. We're not here too much to talk about it though, but I'd love to hear your feedback. I do want to taste these dusties. So let's, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. So while you open up these and pour me whiskey. Yeah. That sounds good. Plan. So like, so you make a really interesting point, right? So, so the idea of that 15 year old or this 18 year old suggests that the whiskey makers were actually interested in making uh, a more premium product or a product that wasn't just missionary sex. And maybe the failure of the Canadian market to adopt it or to show any interest or inclination in buying it and drinking it is, uh, is the real problem. And so I'm beefing more with our grandparents uh, in Canada than I am actually like the manufacturers of this stuff who are probably bored to tears. Oh, oh cork that's break. That's unfortunate. 
Ooh. Oh, that one's going to have to wait a little bit. Do you have, uh, have a wine opener on your... No, I do not have a wine ah. opener. Whiskey, whiskey. All right, and we're back. The um, update on the corked Alberta Springs old time. So it's not corked necessarily, just the cork broke. Um, it just fell right through. I, I did manage to save some of it. Um, and as I opened it, I'm like, whoa, this is really syrupy sweet. So I will look forward to tasting that. Um, yeah, so the, um, so let's, let's start with this, let's start with the Crown Royal and then we can, uh, we'll talk a little bit about, uh, Dusty's and kind of what to look for and what not to look for. All right. So the Crown Royal is what, like two years old at this point? Um, legally you're correct. At this point, it's minimum age statement would have been two years. That's correct. Uh, Canada didn't change till three years minimum until the 73, I believe. But, but, but judging by the color, I would, I would say this is older. And then that's one of the first things what we've learned with, uh, Dusty's is, uh, especially, especially in this, in, like bourbons in the seventies and eighties, you started getting older and older bourbons because they just weren't selling a lot. Yeah. So they just had a lot of old barrels. Um, I mean, already by the color, this is darker than I would have expected it. Definitely. Here, the label on the back, the house of Seagram is proud to present crown Royal in really artistic font, mm-hmm. a regal blend of treasured whiskeys of ancient lineage. What? Born of skill and mellowed by the passage of time. Hyphen. The oldest 30 years and the youngest 10 years. Oh. Hyphen. Each imparting a rare characteristic to enrich this royal offering. All of the resources of the great house of Seagram <laughs> have been employed by its master blenders to create the superb whiskey of, in script, priceless perfection. Wow. It's priceless. And you get in a velvet bag. Man, did this? Did you just say it's anywhere from ten? That's ten-year-old and thirty-year-old blend. Is that what it applies? Uh, yeah. Wow, interesting. The uh, Seagrams used to have a distillery in Ontario that produced Crown Royal, and, and that closed down a while ago. So they had like the Seagrams um, Royal, uh, sorry, the Crown Royal something. Uh, that was the last of the juice produced there. Uh, so this is probably all made in the distillery. We've only tasted a few times, so that's interesting. Hmm. Yeah, actually, that's. Quite nice. It reminds me a little bit of the Northern Rye. Yeah, because of the spice, right? The the yeah. the um that's got the peppery spice, but it's not as oak. But neither are too prominent. They're just kind of like there. Uh, for old old whiskey, it, it seems to have like a lot of like boozy notes. It's, it seems to have like still a lot of character. Uh, sometimes you get these dusties and they just kind of fall flat. Right. Um, and this one certainly has a lot more. Uh, it's opened up not a lot better uh, since then. It does remind me of North, Northern Harvest Rye. Absolutely right. Uh, just some spice, some sugar. Nice little, um, nice little touch there. And there's no indication of the percentage. Oh, of course, because this was the '60s, and apparently you didn't have to. Because they just by putting whiskey, Canadian whiskey on the label, I guess it guaranteed you that it would be a minimum of forty. Yeah, yeah. Um, so with Dusties, one of the things to worry about is um, the first thing if you're if you're ever buying a Dusty or you know at an auction house or what have you. Um, the first thing to look for is the neck to see how much has evaporated. Now, you can't always see how much has evaporated, um, but the more evaporation, the more likely it is that the alcohol content probably went down because that's usually the first to evaporate. It usually means that the seal wasn't as perfect, right? So you're going to get a less boozier drink. Um, it's going to be sweeter. It might be flatter. Um, it's probably the biggest concern. So it would be a flatter whiskey. Um, and so that's really the first thing we look for uh, for Dusty's. It's just to make sure, well, A, is the cork on, right? Um, but in this case, like I said, we couldn't tell. Of clearly, the one in the Alberta Springs broke. Uh, but also, this one also had the shortest neck. I, I don't know if you noticed that one before reported. That had, the neck was down to here. So oh, there was some evaporation there already. Uh, so this is a good example of a Dusty. So the... Um, 
Uh, but yeah, so we'll try that one next, the, the Evaporator. But the Crown Roll, actually, I've, I've had this one before, the Crown Roll, because um, I've had this bottle for three or four years now. And it's the same like with the other one. The kind of the sweetness kind of mellows out, but then you get all this kind of peppery spice, and, and it's actually a really nice drink. And yeah, it's definitely it not today's Crown Royal, which wouldn't have this much spice. It would, it would be more kind of corn forward. This is definitely more rye forward. This is actually really satisfying. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of pepper all mm-hmm. throughout the palate, too, which is kind of neat, front and back. Amazing, right? Um, yeah. And it's still sweet. It still has a kind of the syrupy sweetness, but it's very gentle, very, very kind of gentle yeah. sweetness. It is sweet. Yeah, it is definitely sweet. It's, it's Canadian whiskey. It is. Yeah, and it's well, not like it's not like bourbon too. sweet, but because the one thing I think the difference I think what you 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 clue in on the most is um, with your palate is you like that volume sweetness. You like that bourbon, so kind of like a heavy right. mouthfeel sweetness. Canadian whiskey tends to have a thinner, sweeter. So it's like a it is that kind of difference between kind of like uh, just it's just it's just a thinner drink because uh, of the less oak influence, but it is still that sweetness comes through. So it's not as it's not as, always as satisfying to certain palates. Right, that's really interesting though. But at the same time, I mean, so. I create a lot of space for sort of like the icing sugar, powdering sugar sure. of, um, of like really lightly oaked scotches and Irish whiskey, certainly, um, and uh, and definitely all the caramels and, and butter scotches of like mm-hmm. traditional scotches. Um, but, That's uh, true. Similar reused oak, not uh, yeah. Yeah. So well, maybe know. not that. Maybe not that. We'll work on this. We'll work on this. But that was actually a very nice pour. If uh, anyone has any 1964 Crown Royal kicking around, they should uh, give it a go. It's yeah. probably ready. It, it is not today's Crown Royal. Um, and also, like we said, this was the 60s already. The reason, probably the bigger reason these 18-year-old statements were coming out, and it wasn't because they wanted to sell a more premium market. They just probably had a lot of old barrels and were just like, hey, let's give this a try. Um, and it means this is around the time Scotland started putting these statements on their bottles. Marketably, like this Glenfiddich, I think was in the 60s as well, give or take 64, something like that. Uh, Glenfiddich started marketing their Glenfiddich uh, 8. Um, it wasn't the first time an H statement was on the bottle, certainly not even from Scotland, but it was the first time they went with like a product like, look, we're just going to sell this as an eight year old. Maybe people will, will know why they're paying more. It's because it's not clear. It's not clear because it's been that <laughs> barrel for eight years. Right. And that was there. The H statements kind of came up from there. Um, but I think this is all a sign of the times of like, Crap, we've got a lot of old barrels. And could you imagine how much old barrels Canada had at that time? They did produce so much. Well, I don't know. So I'm thinking about this, and my assumption would be that the Canadian distilling industry would have been converted into sort of military production and be super high volume through the Second World War. Mm-hmm. This is all conjecture. I have no idea. <laughs> uh, and so they would have massive capacity at the end of the war and maybe would have just change that immediately to distilling for the purposes of, of grain alcohol and uh, and drinkable stuff. And so then, yeah, would have a reserve by this point in time. Yeah. Maybe you could sort of check those questions for uh, the next time. Some fact whiskey checking. historians on. And, <laughs> and uh, when Devin comes back, we'll talk about it. Yeah. I, no, it, it's, um, it, it's, but that point, the Canadian history did consolidate a fair bit. Um, so you did already have a lot of consolidation. Even in the 1920s, there was already a lot of consolidation. Um, you know, all the brands Corby owns, right? Uh, Graham and Warts, and right. they, they're, all, they're all from that consolidation. All right. So let's, let's move on to Alberta Springs. Um, we assume, I'll, I'll um, you read things, Glenn. You're a lawyer. Uh, let me uh, let's, uh, let's have you do some work here on this bottle. I do read um, things. We assume that this is from Alberta's uh, Alberta Distillers in uh, in Alberta, which currently makes um, well, Alberta Premium, um, but also is re- responsible for all that terrific whiskey that's coming out that that aged Alberta rye that's being sold a lot in the U.S., especially like Whistle Pig and and Masterson's and that sort of thing. Uh, I'm gonna give this a nose. 
in a taste. And this is the stuff that's, um, this was the one that was a little, uh, certainly was corked. The cork had uh, broken, so it wasn't as of a tight seal. There was also a bit of evaporation. Um, so we can always assume that the alcohol, alcohol content is less, though. Um, I would say it's not as interesting as the Crown Royal, but they're still very similar in flavor. A lot of peppery spice, a lot of sweetness. Um, maybe not as peppery, but... There's definitely more age to it. It's um, more mm-hmm. oak, uh, sort of a characteristic of an older whiskey. The marketing statements on these things are so funny, right? Like, hmm. you just have to imagine that either you didn't have to be very good at your job as a whiskey marketer, in the 60s, or you were so in touch with your consumer who was terrified of change that you somehow knew how to speak to them in this way, and this like sort of like gripped their hearts. Just three generations of quality, like the Crown Royal, just wrapping itself in the crown yeah. flag. It's amazing. But um, we guarantee this whiskey is one of the finest of its kind anywhere, which I guess you would see on bottles today. Mm-hmm. We are proud of three generations of quality, which has given us long experience in the making in making real old time sipping whiskey. Yeah, it's, it is by Alberta Distillers. Okay. Uh, ADL. Um, maybe not completely ridiculous, but. Well, that seems pretty reasonable. Definitely the. Uh, by today's standards, the this bottle is a nice bottle. It's a black label. It's got kind of like, like the, this is still kind of a style of marketing. I'll, I'll have the, the picture posted in the, in the show notes, but it's, it's a very nice uh, bottle. Um, the other thing, uh, so we're talking about uh, uh, Dusty's. The other thing to, to look for really is the. Um, so we talked about evaporation, we talked about cork. Um, screw tops may be your better bet with Dusty's, maybe a little safer. Um, I may, maybe mentioned this story on the podcast before, but what I, I did a tasting of um, a pre-prohibition whiskey uh, that was largely from pre-prohibition. There were a few in there that was from the 50s. Uh, and there was one of those whiskeys from the 50s. Um, I think it was one of a, like a, uh, oh, I can't remember. It was one of the like, uh, old distillers that's not closed down, like the cr- a Crow, whatever. Um, anyway, we opened it up, and we, our first tasting note was glue. Like everyone's like, "It tastes like glue. This tastes like glue." <laughs> and and the the, the person do, running the tasting, he kind of sheepishly um, uh, kind of looked at us. He's like, "Look, guys, I'm not gonna lie to you. Sometimes when they did the labeling and they did the tag and they did the cork, sometimes a little bit of glue got into the bottle." And that glue just kind of seeps in. The bottle slips on the side for a while, and it just you're tasting glue. And you're like, oh, well, that was a correct tasting note. It wasn't even one of those like I get like no, it was it was glue. It was 100. Takes me back to my elementary school days, <laughs> right? Mm. So you you can you can't spend a lot of money on a bottle and then also have glue. Um, not to scare, but like this is like you never really know what you're gonna get. I do think all these and even like we you and I and one of the reasons I brought you on the podcast is um you you and I taste that old granddad. Uh, from the eighties that when I think when I was, poor, when I was poured, uh, I, I literally said, I don't even think this is whiskey. Literally my tasting was like, I don't, this doesn't remind me of whiskey. It was very sweet. It had a lot of character, had like herbal notes. It had this like terrific medley of things I wouldn't associate with any whiskey today necessarily. Um, yeah, you're looking at me like that wasn't my experience. Uh, well, I'm, that was in part a bachelor party weekend, so I'm trying to remember my experience. We're talking at the Beaumont. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it was just really a, okay. It was just a very fascinating experience for me because just it had these notes I didn't quite uh, associated with whiskey. But um, you do associate them with your glue habit. Uh, clearly, yes, yeah, okay. yeah. yeah. Really, yeah. Okay, very interesting. But and so you would attribute that to not the product itself, but like some sort of quality control issue. 
No, I think um, when when he when uh, when specifically at the Beaumont, uh, he uh, said that he goes to us like you know like uh, um, that didn't go to us. Yeah, it's it's just they just probably bottled really old whiskey barrels from all over the place because at right. that point they were just mass producing. Uh, old granddad, it was what it was, right? Old granddad, eighty-one yeah. or whatever, yeah. uh, and they're just producing so much of it. This is just whatever they poured in. This was it. But you won't, you didn't attribute it to whiskey. Well, I just it just tasted more like, um, and I've had this. So I've had this happen a few times with really old uh, scotches as well, where it almost takes on like a vermouth note to it. You know, like okay. the alcohol content's lower. Um, it was probably below forty percent at that point. Okay. And so it was bonded. So. Yeah, it was. I can't remember. If it was eighty one or was it bonded? It must have been bonded then. Yeah, but the alcohol content was longer. It's just the, the sugars kind of just took on a sort of different elements, and I just th- thought of it more of as a vermouth in that character than I would a whiskey. Um, which isn't to say it's displeasing, maybe more, but it's just that that kind of weird concept of like, well, this doesn't really remind me of whiskey. It reminds me of a very strong vermouth or. Or maybe oh, so forward. I, I had this other experience with a very old Scotch that was aged in first-time sherry barrels for like thirty years. Ridiculous, and it, you know it shouldn't have been aged that long. And I was like, I'm drinking a Manhattan. Like this is just a very vermouth-heavy Manhattan. I can taste the booziness on it. It was cast strength too, which is hilarious. But it just it tasted to me more like a like a vermouth uh, than a, than it would like or Manhattan rather like heavy vermouth. Right. Some spirit in there to kind of up the volume. Right, like that makes some sense to me, right? You're mm-hmm. dealing with with. Like a sherried, presumably a heavily sherried scotch. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that is essentially like a sherry cocktail at some point. Uh, whereas with the bourbon, it's just such a, yeah. uh, a sterile process. Yeah, that's surprising. That's very interesting. Yes, yeah, so it I could don't be recall. a lot of over oaked. It could have been a lot of over oaked product just mixed in with a lot of younger product, just to kind of. I don't think that's how they worked, though. Yeah, I don't know I either. Mean, Back then, I yeah, think they just had a lot of really old barrels that needed to be emptied. They needed to be emptied, hundred percent. I have a giant bottle of that. I know. I room. can't so, wait for you to uh, crack that open. Yeah, we'll get the whiskey friends together, and, yeah. uh, and we'll see if it tastes the same as the uh, the other experience. Yeah, but yeah. We've got one from 1987. I need to open up a big old granddad. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, a gallon. Wow, no. that's a lot of old granddad. It's to really drink. big. Whatever the bottle is. I mean, you'll you'll never finish. Like I have this dusty. I, I just I never finish them. I'm just like they're they're kind of. I. I don't know. I suspect that I might drink it like I drink Weller 12, which is like, this is a satisfying, I'm right. a new dad. I'm going to drink this in bed while our kid sort of drifts off to sleep. Yeah. Yeah. yeah makes sense. Just have that. Do you have a table side, a bedside uh, whiskey? No, that's <laughs> not a good sign. It's like, do I hide a bottle of whiskey in the well, tank in my toilet? And yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, we're all, we both live in small places. So let's, that's true. <laughs> right. You're never far. that far from. Never that far. Um, but there are, um, do you have a, but you do have office whiskey, obviously. You have a lot of, you have yeah, a uh, great office whiskey. And that is a lot of well, a lot of bourbon, four roses. Um, yeah. You had that uh, Highland Park in there as well. Uh, yeah, kind of hot in there. Yeah, yeah, sort of, sort of fifty-fifty. Right now, it's Q's bourbon, but uh, I think it's because I've been on a uh, whiskey. Sorry, a uh, Scotch whiskey. Scotch drink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, but at home, yeah, I know. So I've got this massive bottle. I'm really excited about it. But it's got the. I mean, like these do. It's got the tax stamp on the uh, yeah the top still, and I just haven't opened it. And yeah, I'm just really excited to uh, to check it out. But uh, but like I don't find these medicinal in no. any way. Yeah. I can find them character-wise very straightforward. It's like mm-hmm. they're satisfying to drink, but they're they're they aren't this like medley of of different notes. It's whiskey. Yeah, and it is and it is interesting peppery. how similar they sort of taste. I mean, beyond like I, I agree, the Alberta seems to have more age to it, at least kind of in the way it settles in. The Crown Roll is definitely getting more more peppery as it sits in the glass. Um, it's getting that that just. Um, 
Yeah, interesting. I am like really pumped to taste the the Alberta distiller stuff. Like I've heard for so long how all of the good rye in Canada was shipped to the United States or only available in Alberta. But yeah, and they've been unable, and, and I don't know why, they've been unable to release uh, a well-aged product here in Ontario, which I was really surprised uh, because, I mean, everybody else has. You've got J.P. Weiser selling a 35 every year. Um, you know, even they've had an 18 that comes out that's all you know available all year. Like it doesn't make any sense that Alberta wouldn't release that 12 or 18 year old product that is around. Um, but also, I mean, I mean, truth is they may have sold through a lot of their stocks because I know um, uh, you know places like Whistlepig that do depend on Alberta are switching over. I don't know if Whistlepig specifically is, but there are other distilleries in or bottlers in the U.S. that do buy from Alberta that are no longer able to get that 10, 12, 13-year-old product. So they're literally looking for, you know, they're getting like three, four-year-old barrels. Uh, and that's true with MGB of Indiana too. They're, they're still, you know, they're, they're starting to sell through a lot of that, um, a lot of that, that older product that they had. Um, yeah, the whiskey boom is happening, right? So it's just that you're, you're not going to find those barrels. So I, I do wonder how many barrels Alberta still has. Uh, I'm sure they got a billion barrels, but, you know, uh, of, the older, <laughs> of the older stuff. Uh, how many they actually have? Um, yeah, and so this is the, so we're gonna do the uh, as we as we chat. So J, JP Wise is, uh, is the next one. This is uh, Canada's oldest. Here I'm gonna send this to the legal expert. Um, but is it? This is an 18 year old Canadian whiskey. Um, and to be fair, that's was probably very rare at the time. Um, Probably, oh, oh, I don't actually probably made it higher in Walker, but again, uh, I shouldn't say that. Made in Belleville. Belleville, Ontario. Mm. Mm. All right, see, there you go. It wasn't Hiram Walker even. So this is even before that a consolidation. Let me just, uh, Belleville, Ontario, eh? This special Canadian whiskey has been quietly aging wow. as opposed to the Loudly. noisily aging whiskey. Teenage whiskey, I guess. I don't yeah. Know. Uh, in charred oaken casks. So not oak casks, but oaken, oaken. casks. Uh, for 18 years long, from a distillery... Uh, noted for its older whiskeys. This is the oldest and finest, 18 years old. Wow. I love the uh, confidence that... Uh, so there used to be a distillery in um, Belleville. Um, it was once called... Uh, well, that's true, actually. Uh, Belleville is, the, the I believe, the home of Corby's, uh, where, where the original distillery started. Um, it's now apparently being rehabilitated to a brewery. Now it's called Signal Brewery. So there you go. Um, they make beer. Uh, so yeah, this is this is still before even the secondary consolidation. Where pretty much almost every product from well, certainly from Corby's is made in uh, in Hiram Walker, um, and then even products that uh, Beam Centauri produces are made uh, like Canadian Club is made in Hiram Walker, uh, and then you really have Gimli's that does Crown Royal, and then you have Alberta Distillers, um, and, and you know, and then there's other distillers in, in Canada that we don't generally have the products here. I mean, there's uh, Canadian Mist and, and a few others, but um, but as far as products that they sell in Canada, that's that's a very limited number. Okay, this doesn't. This is a little tobacco-y. I'm glad that you swirled the glass. I was going to say it's a pretty quiet whiskey on the nose. Super quiet. Like it's it's sweet, but it smells more like tobacco sweetness. Like, but not like burning tobacco. Like if I had a cigar and you just had it next to your nose, kind of that kind of sweetness. <laughs> there's a uh, there's a. a a football manager, a soccer uh, manager named Maurizio Sarri, mm-hmm. who loves to smoke more than anything in the entire world, but he can't smoke in any soccer grounds anymore right. across Europe. So he was playing a big European final earlier this week, mm-hmm. which they won for Chelsea, uh, which was, I think, on the whole good. 
Go Chelsea? Uh, I don't know. I but uh, no, no, no. But Boo, uh, they were playing Arsenal, and it was really great to see Arsenal lose. Ah. Uh, but the entire match, as opposed to chewing on a cigarette, which he normally does during games, like literally just sort of like gnaws on a cigarette oh, as a way to deal with stress and just to, as a nervous tick, basically, he had a cigar. So he was gnawing on a cigar for the final. Like the was, butt of a cigar? Like the butt of a cigar. Oh. Yeah, which is amazing. <laughs> that would not taste sweet to me at all. No. So, so yeah, so he would love this. This is tobacco y, as tobacco y as it gets. All right, let's uh, have a sip. It is actually really cool. Oddly, that tastes the most like Canadian whiskey to me. It's got a little like, sort of paint thinner sort of aspect to it. Really? Uh, yeah, so like, I don't know if it's like uh, some acetones or, or what in there. Um, sort of the base layer. If you like, subtract it all to sort of like what its essence is, very much. Like a CC a Canadian Club, um, that's my pull. Yeah, I, I th- there's a lot of layers of sweetness here. Um, not not overly not overly complex. Um, the nose is really wonderful, but the palate it's it's you're kind of getting like a few flavors. You're kind of getting, I don't know. I hate to use the word licorice or anise because it's not quite there, but it's an herbal okay. note, right? And then you're kind of, but I agree. There's, there's like this top layer of just sugars that just kind of land on your palate. And towards that end, you get that kind of Canadian, distinct Canadian rye note, I think is what you... I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't describe the same way you did, but the, the, I, I hear what you're saying. It's that Canadian uh, rye note that you would find in, in the CC. Like, it's that... If, the best way I've always described this note is if you take CC and you take a Coca-Cola and you mix them together and you taste that that rye that you taste, the one note that gets through the, all that sugar, yeah. all, that, yeah. all, the, all the Coke, uh, is that there's that one note of Canadian rye. That is, that is the distinct rye flavor. It survives everything. You could pour sugar and ice cream <laughs> on it and cream, and it doesn't matter. You're gonna, if there's some Canadian rye in there. If there's some CC in there, you'll, you'll be able to taste that Canadian rye. Um, and it does, this, has, this does sort of remind me of that. It's got like this pancakely sweet palate, and then it just that, that, that Canadian rye just bursts through, uh, bursts through a bit. It is crazy. There's nothing on the front of palate. It all hits you in the middle of the mouth, the middle of the tongue. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Super odd. Um, yeah, so you're right. The other two do not have that. Um, I have a crazy amount of sediment in my bottle. This is a cork or is this a screw cap? That's a screw cap. Yeah, look at oh, the, really? Look at the, gray, look at the bottom of this. Uh, I wonder if it's, uh, maybe that's just the dishwasher sediment. <laughs> <laughs> I, I taste dishwasher soap and Tide uh, Pods. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually quite possible. I, I did pull these uh, glasses from the very back. We, uh, um, I, I have a side hustle business where I rent glassware for. I'm not kidding, but uh, we, uh, there's, a, there's a whiskey club in, uh, in Toronto that uh, rents glasses for me, and they just returned a bunch. So I, I was down to like six glasses. So um, yeah, um, I found those last two at the back of the cabinet somewhere. This is a nice finish, though. This stays with you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, man, super interesting. So. The big question mark, I think, for most people that want to get into Dusty's Mm -hmm. is a sense of the market and what things cost. Mm -hmm. So can you give me a sense of... So let's say I wanted to buy a bottle of regular bourbon Mm -hmm. from the 1960s today. What is like a Jim Beam from 1965 cost? Like any idea? Uh, There's a website that's the the Blue Bottle. I will put a link in it that, that that will give some pricing. Uh, for for Dusty's, um, but the market is interesting because it's it seems it's kind of like any other kind of fad market. They, they, it's just somebody <laughs> talks like somebody has something and they taste it. This is terrific, and then like a bunch of other people want it. There's so little market of it. There's some. There's probably a lot more of these Dusty's than 
people are aware of. Um, and the, so the funny part is the United Kingdom buys up a lot of it because you can legally sell it in the UK. In the US, it's really hard. Kentucky's now made this easier. So in Kentucky, okay. um, if you want to broker, if you want to stu- like, let's say you've got your $2,000 bottle of Pappy Van Winkle 23, which is probably now worth $5,000. Um, if you want to sell it to somebody else, you can actually go to any liquor store and well, I shouldn't say any, but you can go to a liquor store and they, they will they will do that transaction for you. Theoretically, they're providing you some sort of like security that this is possibly a valid Pappy, though nobody will really guarantee that. Of course. Um, and and they will collect a small fee for that trans uh, that that transition. Now, there's a, there's a there's a certainly a huge gray market, and I don't think you call it a gray market if it's illegal. I feel like that's that's a black market. It's a gray market. It's still a gray market. Okay, see, this is why we have a lawyer on the show. Um, but there is a gray market of 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 trading of, of private trading, um, and usually they use the blue book value from the bluebottle.com or, or something similar to that. Um, and they'll use that website. But the old granddad that you got was a great example of that. So we drank that old granddad um, around the time it was starting to become a fad, and we're just like, whoa, this old granddad from the 80s, Bald and Bond, was like terrific. Wow, this is amazing. And then you know, six months later, I looked it up, and it was selling for three or $400 a bottle. Then we looked up your bottle, and it's worth, what was it? Like three grand? Yeah, like some, right, $3,000. And it's because somebody had it, and it was good, and then some other people found it, and they're like, oh, this is really great, and now it became a thing. Um, this Canadian whiskey is... Very, very cheap by comparison. <laughs> uh, the uh, I, I didn't check the values on, on anything, but I believe um, uh, I believe they're about eighty dollars each. And I and I do think I, so. We, we had Fred Mendick on on the podcast, and we poured him some dusties, and he's like, "Wow, this is really terrific," because he's he he was very understanding of the U.S. the bourbon uh, dusties from the seventies and eighties, uh, and he's like, "Wow, the and so he started collecting Canadian whiskey." Uh, he started ever since the podcast. No he went and started building up a con- old Dusty's Canadian whiskey because he's like, "This is a great value for eighty bucks." Let's just and he just buys bottles. Um, so he, I mean, he really likes this, and I think it's uh, it gives you that same sort of flavor profile. The question is, where's that flavor profile? I, I do think they have a very similar, even though Old Granddad has a very similar kind of flavor profile. Just it just takes time. It's it, they're all different, of course, but I'm just saying they don't taste like today's whiskeys, and it's not to say that they're better or worse. They just they just don't. Right. They well, don't they don't have that 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 same But like what you're trying to take advantage of, right, mm-hmm. is whiskeys that sat around in the barrel forever mm-hmm. and then needed to be bottled but could only be sold as bottom shelf whiskey. For ten right? bucks. Like, yeah. like that's like the arbitrage is that it's really hard to get your hands on a twenty five year old barrel in Kentucky or in Canada yeah. now. Uh, but they didn't know what to do with them in the eighties. And you right? have no guarantee you're gonna get that you know, because who knows? Nineteen seventy nine, old granddad might have just been like five year old stuff, right? You don't really know where that. Yeah, no. Line well, is. but at yeah. the same time, like they think there was a great effort put on uh, trying to ensure consistency uh, sure. and yeah. quality uh, throughout a certain brand label. Yeah. Right. And so, like, there was testing being done or tasting at least, so non scientific. Gradually tasting. got older, right? So, yeah. yeah, gradually got older. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, so this bottle that I'm speaking of, this uh, old granddad from the 80s, it's from a distillery that doesn't exist anymore. They don't mm-hmm. make any of this stuff anymore. It was bought by Jim Beam in the late 80s and mothballed. Uh, yeah. And it was noted for certain characteristics that came from this particular distiller. Uh, and because no one was drinking the stuff, the whiskey was super old and yeah. uh, really beautiful. And then it ceased to exist in around 1990. Yeah. yeah. I, and that's it. And that's right, and that character can't be gotten. I mean, two out of the three bottles we tested today, tasted today are no longer distilleries either. Yeah. The Crown Royal, Royal and the, um, the Wisers are. And you don't really know, you know how 
certain characteristics that, that are just are not around anymore. And I think that is, that is part of the cool things. And certainly in scotch that happens too, right? You've got the, the old distilleries that stop production. Um, the Port Allen's are $15,000 a bottle for the 20 year old Port Allen. And, and, um, and I've had them. They're really nice. Um, I'd never spend $15,000 on a bottle or 5,000. I mean, even if, if, even let's say, let's say that was just an average whiskey buy for me, I'd be okay. But it's, not that you know it's not that well, interesting right but i mean like oligarchs need to find a way to get into whiskey as well and they're Fair certainly enough. not gonna like plow through the 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 shelves of the lcbo to try and figure out what they're into that's right? a good point so, right like, hopping gonna... into the rarest and the weirdest is it's a bit of an arms race i think like, even amongst right. like, whiskey friends yeah uh trying to find the weirdest or most unusual bottle you can within reason is like something you go to lengths for yeah and if you're someone who likes to buy decommissioned battleships and turn them into private yachts for yourself to go from... Does anybody actually do that? Yeah. It's a really nice little cottage industry. (laughs) Uh, Then then you're probably also interested in in 100-year-old scotch. And yeah, uh, uh, yeah, sort of like your entry price is... 10,000 pounds and you go from there. I feel like if we were, if we were located in, in the States, we would be doing the American version of this. But the way you come across Dusties is you know people that have them in your like their great-grandfather's or grandfather's garage. And that's how you acquire Dusties typically. Someone's like, yeah, hey, I've got to find this old whiskey. Do you want it? Um, at least that's the way it's happened for me. Um, so, but and that's what happens in the U.S. with the old granddads and yeah. the old the product, the product. So we're we're doing it very. But, but again, I, I do I do think find this topic very interesting only because I do think you get a lot of these older profiles from Canadian uh, dusties. Um, that and, and of course this doesn't exist so much in Scotland because in Scotland you're literally looking for things that were barreled from old distillers and they're bought you know bottling it today right so there it's not like it's hanging around in bar- somebody's backyard or garage so much uh anymore anyway um but uh yeah it's an interesting concept to have these uh bottles even, just laying around like, i mean i think there was enough brand equity in, into scotch generally uh even 20 years ago like well before the gold rush there were people in the know who would go and find distillers that went out of business and go into mm-hmm. their whatever they call rick oh, houses totally. yeah and buy barrels and get them bottled for next to nothing and then have their own sort of brand of scotch with some friends. And that was it. Like I remember as an 18 year old being told about silent distillers uh, mm-hmm. and then purchasing from, from those sort of institutions in the late nineties, early two thousands. And I was just like, that's insane. Completely yeah. amazing. You get these barrels and you just, you, you can age them a little longer if you want to. You don't have to yeah. That's really amazing stories. Um, so uh, let's, let's talk about, um, shall we pick our favorites? Uh, yeah, sh- certainly, certainly. Because I'm, I'm, I'm having a little trouble because, um, well, the, I mean, I for me, I'm, I'm most impressed by this like bottom shelf Crown Royal. Like I was I gonna say, yeah, hate, I hate the modern incarnation of it so much. It's like like you buy it becomes it because it comes in a velvet bag. Like it's not an exciting whiskey. It's I like style over substance. Uh, but this is actually like a really satisfying thing to. Uh, to sip on uh, the Alberta distillers, uh, I was pretty excited about, and it's a very—it's uh, an older whiskey, and it's nice, but it's nothing incendiary. Uh, and the the Wiser's uh, is is all right; it's fine. It's—I'm uh, not blown away by the other two. I'm really surprised by how good the Crown Royal is. Uh, yeah, I agree, and I. I... 
So th- th- that was my thing too. So I, I really love, love Leo's, the nose on the Wiser's 18. I thought it was such a, I was like, oh, I can't wait to yeah. dive into this. And I think it's what, evolving too. It, it is. And I think all the, and I think that's maybe the other thing we've noticed with Dusty's. Oh yeah. That's, that's probably the last takeaway from this with Dusty's. They, they will evolve in the bottle and in the glass. Um, you know, we, we talk about does whiskey change the glass, blah, blah, blah. That, that this is beyond that. It's the point is you're, you're taking a product that's been trapped and maybe slowly evaporating out but the moment you open it up it's not the best time to taste these whiskeys it's usually you know you let it sit in the glass for a little while and you kind of let it evolve and i think that's true um for me the wiser's 18 um had that wonderful wonderful nose that i was really looking to dive into and it just it just kind of lacked a bit on the palate it wasn't it just was like i think you meant you said you described the best a lot of sweetness and then you kind of got your canina rye and that seemed to be it um Crown Royal had some time to evolve because it was already open and we've poured it. Um, and the Alberta Springs is a close second to me. I, I, I liked it a lot. I think it had a little more character, just kind of, it just, it just, yeah, it just kind of was second place. I think the Crown Royal, the pepperiness of the Crown Royal. It's weird. It's just up there. I never thought I would be presented with three whiskeys and ever tell you the Crown Royal was the best. Well, look, that's what we do here. Um, Wow, Mark, my I, eyes have really been opened. I, uh, you wanna, yeah, I was going to say, you want to... We're, we're pouring seconds of the 18 just to kind of give it a second chance and see what it's going to do. Yeah. Also, uh, it's the Champions League final today, and that kicks off in about an hour and a half. So yeah, so I'm really uh, yeah, excited to be... Uh, by the time this podcast is posted, by the time this podcast is posted, uh, we'll be, uh, uh, the game will be over. But, but tell us a little bit about soccer, uh, football, football. Yeah, sure. Uh-huh. Um, it's funny, so I was thinking about this this day and going into taste Canadian whiskeys because Canadian distillers and blenders are really known for taking garbage and making it into something palatable. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in a lot of ways, there's a role for a soccer manager that does the exact same thing. It takes sort of players that are very average or maybe not very good and creating a system and then letting them excel in it uh, and finding a way to grow them into something that is exceptional. And so Canadian master blenders and distillers are often bought up by um, by U.S. bourbon companies and distillers in the hopes that they can, if they're given like supreme quality, that they can make something that's truly extraordinary. That's not always the case. I mean, it's... I uh, say there's only like three master blenders or five out of Canada, but... Right, yeah, so yeah. it's a thin pool, and maybe this is a weak example. <laughs> uh, but I hear where you're going with that. This is, you know... But yeah, so, so I'm a fan of this uh, plucky young club called uh, Tottenham Hotspur. The Hotspur, they're from North London, yeah. uh, and uh, and so they're making it to their first Champions League final, which is very exciting. Champions League is sort of the uh, the the final is the second most important game in association soccer. The first being the World Cup final, mm-hmm. which is played every four years. This is every year, but it's the top clubs in Europe to play, and so it's Tottenham and Liverpool, and Liverpool is a beloved club mm-hmm. uh, with a great history. Uh, and Tottenham really has no business being in this final, uh, but they've got a bunch of players that uh, either were smart acquisitions or have been developed by the club and have turned out to be just extraordinary players. And through some luck and uh, and some good timing uh, and a like surprisingly thin squad, mm-hmm. so not a lot of people uh, of quality play for the team, and they've had terrible injuries. Uh, they've managed to get to the final uh, through this manager, Mauricio Pochettino, who somehow manages to extract like everything he can from his players. Uh, and so in a way, he's the Canadian sort of master blender of uh, of European soccer. Wow. 
Yeah. So I'm really excited. I'm going to a Canada's Spurs Bar, which is Scotland Yard on the Esplanade in Toronto. And uh, you're only allowed in if you're wearing some form of Spurs garb, uh, which I am. And I'm going to drink with a bunch of terrifying British people. Does who Spurs are going have to be... to do with Pumas? Because you've got a lot of Pumas on your jacket. Uh, Puma makes jerseys. Oh, uh, and uh, this is an old jersey from 10 years ago. Is that a... Uh, and so it's a, this is a rooster on top uh, of a basketball? old soccer ball. Well, old soccer ball, right. Old okay. soccer ball. Everything used to look like basketball. And I that's guess. an investment house? Uh, this says Investico on it, mm. uh, which was the sponsor for the uh, Champions League edition of this jersey in 2011, maybe? Where's the team name on this jersey? Uh, it's uh, really, it's legitimately just as Crest. <laughs> Uh, there might be a tag on the side somewhere. I mean, I feel this is an interesting discussion because we talked about um, um, bottles and how they're labeled. This is like uh, maker of the jersey, a shoemaker, I guess, and then the logo and then an investment company. Yeah, but like soccer's weird, right? Like, well, in a variety of ways. But uh, even you go to many games uh, in Mexico or across Europe and people will, as opposed to bringing like team branded stuff mm-hmm. they'll just bring like a flag with a country that has the same colors uh-huh. uh which is like completely bizarre and so like in mexico you'll go to a a game where the team is blue and white and those are its club colors and there'll just be finnish flags everywhere and people <laughs> and greek flags just like flying them around it's like are you greek is there any affiliation to being greek it's like no no just these colors are the colors are... of the club you know yeah. it's the way we support them it's like super strange um uh, Tottenham Hotspur have a, a connection to. Uh, uh, they live in a or they exist in a neighborhood that has a uh, uh, Orthodox Jewish population, mm-hmm. uh, and so there's always been sort of a relationship. Not always, but certainly in the last like seventy or eighty years, a relationship between uh, being Jewish, being in a Jewish neighborhood, and being a Tottenham Hotspur. And uh, I mean, Londoners historically have been pretty good at pointing out sort of cultural and religious differences between them and their immigrant populations. Right. Uh, and so, so Tottenham Hotspur, whether you're Jewish or not, uh, its team colors are white primarily. They're mm-hmm. called the Lily Whites and then blue. Uh, and uh, its club culture sort of embraced this idea of, uh, of uh, yeah, being Jewish. There's a very controversial uh a chant, which is just sort of yelling out the the word Yiddo, Y-I-D-D-O, uh, as like an inclusive way of identifying yourself as a Spurs fan. With the Spurs has Spurs have nothing to do with actually being Jewish, and so, so there's a question over like, can we can we fly Israeli flags at our games? Right, can right. We, uh, can we call this out without actually having a connection to that place or to this religion and this culture? Um, um, but uh, anyway. The Champions League final is today. Everyone is losing their minds over it who are supporters of uh, Liverpool mm-hmm. or of, uh, uh, of the Hotspur. There must and be more Liverpool, Liverpool fans in yeah, Toronto. no question. Like by like 10 to 1, I assume. No question. Yeah. No question. And the funniest thing about it is you go to this bar and, uh, I mean, Toronto is a city of expats. Uh, yeah. And you meet people and they'll go up to you and they'll be like, hey, you're not from England? And I'll be like, no. It's like... Are your parents from London, North London? Like, no. It's just like, okay. So I grew up in North London supporting this tiny club that I really enjoyed. And I have a connection to them and I was born into it. And it's a tiny club. And so, like, what are you 
like 400 people who have no connection to this place other than maybe like in an abstract fashion doing here supporting this club like they're sort of gobsmacked that there's this crew of people that really embrace this uh this uh yeah this this club that's never won the premier league and uh until recently hasn't had success uh, just, in a consistent way in Europe, and I just picture this old man from the town with his with his wife coming in, like we're just going to sit down at two fifty eight, and there's just a lineup outside the bar, like what the hell? Oh yeah, no, no question. No, I mean, it's actually it's very odd in the Canadian soccer context, yeah, uh, to have uh, to have essentially like a, a dress code requirement to say, look, this is a Spurs bar, yeah. and if you are an Ajax fan or a Liverpool fan or any other fan, you're frankly like, thank you, we're we're blushing. We're so thankful that you want to come and drink with us. But really, like, there are going to be a bunch of geezers getting Larry in there. And uh, if things don't go well or things go very well, we should probably just, like, keep this homogeneous and, and let it just be Spurs fans today for everyone's safety. That is awesome. That's awesome. I, I don't know if it is awesome. I mean, there's a crazy tribalism that comes along with European soccer. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean soccer generally around the world and so generally toronto is kind of a fun place to be a soccer fan because it's very inclusive yeah world cup Uh, stuff is amazing like world cup here is amazing it's great it's great everyone's team who wins just goes through little italy honking their horns driving slowly and waving flags whether they played italy or not yeah it's like a wonderful tradition right it's like italians like soccer we're just gonna go there fuck you you losers (laughs) (laughs) we aren't even in this world cup it's like yeah eat it (laughs) turkey forever That's true. That that yeah, that is how yeah. Toronto the, the flags come out and it's really wonderful and, and yeah. I love so Toronto my favorite during the World Cup is that there are just these micro communities that you didn't ex- know existed that are here. And so it's like all of a sudden like the Slovenians are like stopping traffic and coming out to yeah. to really show pride in their country. It's like, oh man. The bar on the corner is a lot of Brazilians and I'm just like where are all the Brazilians? They're just like World Cup just yeah. boom. The Icelandics are just going yeah. nuts. They're like, oh, they must be in Little Reykjavik. Like what? <laughs> That's a place in the city? That is awesome. Um, all right. Well, um, thank you. thanks so much for coming on, Glenn. Um, Glenford, um, so if somebody wants to find you and uh, get any food law. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, practices. this really has nothing to do with my like, I professional know, work. I know. But uh, yeah, sure. So I'm a food lawyer. I uh, work almost all the time in the food sector and the alcohol beverage sector. And uh, you can find me at food.gsjameson.com. I teach at Michigan State Law School uh, in my free time. And, and you uh, throw conferences around the world about law. Yeah, yeah. I go around the world and talk about Canadian food laws and the weird parts of it, like Canadian food law uh, rules around whiskey, Canadian whiskey. And uh, yeah, occasionally I get to drink scotch with you, which is really nice. It's very fun. But drinking these dusties is pretty nice, too. Ah, thanks for coming on, Glenn. Cheers. Right, cheers. Bye. Crystal makes a really nice sound. It actually did make a very nice sound. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.